here's my story. I, uh, my first consensually non-monogamous encounter was in 2004, uh, with a girlfriend I was dating. We messed around with a friend of mine and, uh, yeah. And then I kind of, I liked it. And then I had several relationships back to back where I was like, Oh, this is the one she's the best. And then a couple of years later, something would go wrong and it would fall apart. And I would start questioning, well, Hmm. What was I saying all that for, you know? And it seemed a little, I don't know. It, it seemed like it, it, it wasn't an accurate appraisal of my experiences. And so it was probably around 2007 that I actually just started doing more like a full time. I had another girlfriend and we kind of talked it out and started with, you know, fantasies and such. And then we moved on to, you know, actually uh, inviting other people into the bedroom, took it step by step. So, um, yeah, that was and 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 that was kind of the breaking point because I I felt like I was lying to myself in um, in trying to maintain monogamy that clearly kept failing and it did not feel like who I was. And I was fortunate to have people who were open to that because back in that time, polyamory, I didn't even hear the word for another, I want to say 10 years. Um, so it wasn't everywhere like it is now, um, which is, I think it's a good thing that it's everywhere because people have options because there was a lot of fumbling around in the dark and it felt like, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing here. There weren't names for things. So you would have an emotion and you wouldn't know what to call it or even how to describe it. Um, and that can be really tough, you know, because, but you know, if you really care about your partner, then you can work through that together. And that's what I did, you know, with my first few relationships before people started getting the word out, like that other people are actually doing this, you know, regularly. Um, and then a, a bit of a funny, funny kind of story is back then we kind of did more like a swinger dynamic where not like official meetups or anything, but, you know, we would invite friends or people we would meet from, you know, uh, swing lifestyle, you know, and we'd have a little bit of fun. And back then I would look at the polyamorous people and I was just like, man, that's nuts. Like I would never let, you know, let allow, you know, it, I was young, naive, right? Let my partner have these emotional feelings for somebody else skip forward to now. And that's what I'm doing. If I'm talking and going, it's a conversation. Feel free to jump in. If anything, catches. I was, I was just saying, because policing other people's emotions is so easy. I mean, you right, know, we right, know right. the you chemistry, I mean, something. your speciality is the science of sex. And so Definitely. you know better than I about the bonding impacts of biological chemicals like oxytocin. And so you have a profound physical experience with someone and it stirs up lots of emotions. You bond with them it's why people bond with people who are phenomenally bad for them emotionally and socially because they've had great sex and their body says well this is your mate and the rest of them really ought to be saying no but you know we're complicated creatures we're engineered pretty well but we're not engineered perfectly indeed absolutely absolutely and and it was i i just i kind of have to i'm of the, the belief that if you can't laugh at yourself in life, especially the things you used to do that were silly, like, like you got to lighten up because like life is way too short to spend always worried that you're going to look back on yourself. Well, you're always going to look back on yourself and cringe. And that means you're growing. Um, but yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. You know, I mean, it, it is, it is odd how 
even then where I would have probably considered myself very enlightened, you know, I'm, I'm allowing my partner to do this and they're allowing me to do this, right? There was still that element of control and that took a couple of years in order for me to realize that that's not necessarily the only way. And then I met somebody who was actually in a polyamorous relationship and I was just like, okay, that, that seems awesome. Then I spent a little while single and then I got an opportunity and they said, Hey, do you want to do this? And I said, sure. And one thing led to another. And so that's, that's how we ended up here. Um, and it's, it's really been phenomenal. It, it has, like I said, uh, before this, you know, there's a lot of people who are, this is much more the specialty of what they talk about for me. It's just how my relationship is. And, uh, we're a uh, polyfidelitous. So, um, you know, there's, we, we've got like a, a V and, um, so there's three of us. And I kind of like to say, just to simplify it for a lot of people, even though this is a gross oversimplification, it's much like a traditional relationship, but with more than two people. Now, again, that's a gross oversimplification, but um, that speaks to the vast array of relationship structures that are possible. What we're doing is what works for us. And um I think it's interesting because it's like you, you know, you go away from monogamy and it's, there's no one clear path where it's, you just go straight this way. And in your book, you interviewed a lot of people and you cover pretty much everything. No, it's essentially everything that's not monogamy. And that's, that's a loss. I mean, I, I would hesitate to, to say that monogamy only looks one way, but Socially in the West, we have a fairly clearly defined path of what monogamy looks like. A lot of people who are consensually non-monogamous talk about the relationship escalator. This idea that dating relationships go in a, a, a mutually understood or not necessarily even mutually understood, more socially understood progression from say hi, chat somebody up on a dating site, you know, meet for a drink. Maybe you have dinner on the next date. Depends how conservative you are, I suppose. Sleep together. At some point, you move in. Um, you think about getting married. You think about having kids. Uh, you celebrate anniversaries. You die. You, you get an award for getting through to the end um, and, and, and not having screwed up. And people screw up. And then their relationships end. But they have another monogamous relationship thereafter. And some people... Are, Serially monogamous. They will go through all of these phases of relationship with varying degrees of rapidity. Some people like the early stages of a relationship so much that they basically speed everything up. And they, once that initial thrill has, has, has worn off, you know, and things start to settle down, they lose interest and move on. But one of the things which and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I get the strong impression talking to them that one of the things that nature likes is diversity. Nature hedges its bets. So for that reason, I evangelize very much in this book, if I'm evangelizing for anything, it's two things. One is consent, and that's very much written in from the start of the book. And the other one is choice, because everybody can make choices for themselves. And that, I suppose, is controversial in as much as we still live in societies, I mean, some of us more than others, where those choices are prescribed for you. I mean, in the United Kingdom, um, it's a 
fairly liberal society. We, we don't have the legal problems that you're seeing in the United States over things like women's uh, dominion over their own bodies, uh, restriction of abortion laws, um, any number of other attempts by conservatives in various societies to restrict what one gender or the other can do or how they can relate, restrict the nature of relationships between people of the same gender or, or what have you. So the, I suppose the fundamental issue is to what extent society should consider the private lives of its citizens part of the public sphere. And if you go somewhere like Iran, or if you go somewhere, I hesitate to compare Iran to Texas, but I mean, yes, it's, it, it's about choice and it's about um, making consensual choices, consensual in so far as everybody involved in the choices within reason. I mean, there's a debate about how many uh, degrees of, of metamor, meta, 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 metamor, you know, you, you ask whether something is okay. And I think most people are fairly pragmatic about that. But um, yeah, it's it's those two things. So once you accept that the choices that we make for ourselves are for our personal lives, our relationships are are very much part of our personal autonomy, insofar as they affect only us and they're consensual. Then, is who who else's business is it? Basically, I mean, well, yeah. If, I mean, of course, people will say, yeah. Well, it's everybody's business because I I don't like the idea of what you're up to in private. It, it disgusts me. You have to stop. Um, and so they pass laws to stop it. And if they catch you, uh, they'll throw you in prison or execute you or whatever it is. But it's a, it's a case of, you know, we decide between us in democracies what sort of societies we want to live in. And, you know, we allow other people the, the degree of freedom that we want to be allowed ourselves. I yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just, it, it, it puzzles me constantly because like, Kind of by definition, a mutually consensual relationship doesn't harm anybody. I mean, like it's one of the most benign things that human beings can engage in. And still it continually comes under attack um, by very socially conservative, uh, if not usually politically conservative forces in every country. Um, the variety aspect that you mentioned is, is quite inter quite interesting. Um, are you familiar with the work of Helen Fisher, anthropologist? She wrote a couple of books in the, in the 1980s and 19, well, still, she's still writing books, but there were a couple of big ones in the 1980s. And she did, um, she did some research and, and found that, you know, exploring a lot of different cultures, um, there's the interbirth interval. And that is basically, if you look at most societies across earth, both societies are not monogamous. Um, people kind of trade their relationships in about every four years. And this is kind of talking about the serial monogamy uh, aspects. And that is hypothesized to be, you know, that's the length of time it takes for two people to at least raise a child to moderate self-sufficiency. They're not eating, you know, they, they can eat solid foods and, um, Usually once they reach the age of four, from then onward, it's a lot more promising. Their prospects um, with things like, you know, disease and famine and stuff that you would find in, you know, a more uh, naturalistic society, not, you know, a Western industrialized culture. And so that that's kind of what the theory is. What's that? I was just going to say, by the age of four, they can't quite reach the pedals of the car. <laughs> yeah, not yeah, not quite yet. But, you know. 
But at that point, it's, you know, it, it, the the protecting of those because, you know, most children that, that die in childhood are going to die before the age of four. And so, you know, that's the theory is that pair bonding is kind of it's got kind of an expiration date. And that doesn't mean that everybody follows through with that. And just full disclosure, since not the entirety of my audience is non-monogamous and that's not the entirety of my content. Um, well, I personally have a non-monogamous relationship. I am not one of those people who preaches and thinks that everybody needs to be like me. Um, I really do um, hope that the people out there in monogamous relationships are happy and that, like you said, everything is based on choice and consent. Um, and I don't think, I think that it's a good thing that there's diversity, that there's all that diversity that we mentioned and relationship types. Um, I think it gives people more options and as I experienced, like I just explained, you know, that, that arc took a lot of learning. It, you know, it, I had to, to, to learn things about myself and that took some trial and error. And it took me a while to hone in on what was right for me and what felt right. So sometimes we kind of might have an idea of what is best for us, but it's not that exact. It's kind of like a fuzzy picture that you're trying to make out. And, you know, the more you experience relationships with people, the, the clearer that becomes. Um, and I do think, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who think that, that polyamorous people are on some higher plane of existence because we've conquered jealousy. I mean, plenty of my friends, you know, they're polyamorous and they deal with jealousy every single day. I don't really feel it personally. Like it's, it's just not something that I experience, but I understand, you know, that experience that they have. I do think that there is some benefit to the questions you're forced to ask yourself when you transition away from the de facto. And even if you try non-monogamy and decide this isn't for me and you go back, in my view, you'll know a lot more about yourself than you did beforehand. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, did you, I'm sure plenty of people told you that it was not one of those things where you just, they just jumped in and everything was good. Like that there was definitely a learning curve and people had to explore their feelings and um, their understanding of what they wanted and how they responded to things. So, so here's something that I think is quite interesting. Um, the subject of jealousy is one of those things that people in consensually non-monogamous circles talk about endlessly. It's like if women's magazines recycle their relationship articles every 12 months, a magazine for polyamorous people would be writing about jealousy every three or four. And one of the things that I think possibly confuses the discussion uh, is that um, people describe jealousy as a complex emotion. I, I would actually question whether uh, jealousy is actually more of an umbrella term that people throw over a number of discrete and distinct emotions, such as insecurity, anger, fear, envy, and, and so forth. Um, one of the things I look at in the book, for instance, is actually whether there is such a thing as proper jealousy, uh, jealousy that perhaps is there to serve a purpose, a little bit like shame. And shame is quite interesting, and I'll come back to jealousy in a second. Shame from an evolutionary point of view, is a flare, or it's a red flag that you are in danger of being excluded from the group. And it seems to go back to our days when we lived in small 
mobile groups of hunter-gatherers. Um, and those groups might be typically, and we'll discuss this more, I'm sure, maybe 150-odd people going around. And if you were excluded in our distant past from your group, it more or less equated with death. So if you were doing something transgressive, shame acted as a warning sign that you were doing something wrong and you were in danger. Jealousy. Um, I wanted to have, to have a look at what might be its evolutionary purpose, as opposed to all the things, oh, you make me jealous, you know, I'm really jealous of him or all of this. A lot of the time that's actually describing envy or oh, I, I get really jealous. You know, sometimes that's describing insecurity, fear your needs aren't going to be met, means that you'll be abandoned or superseded by somebody else. And as you said, if we have, um, something of a of, of a clock where we exchange relationships after a period of four or five years or whatever, and people even in Western modern culture talk about things like the seven-year itch, then it's understand that people understandable if if in a society where people aren't financially and materially independent of one another, that, that might be a real problem because they they don't just use, lose their relationship, they lose their means of support, they lose their home, what have you. Jealousy proper you can refer to in a fairly narrow number of cases. And where it applies, I think, is as a warning signal that you are being treated unjustly. So it tends to be triangular. It tends to be C, a B does something for C, A feels that they've been left out because something is their due. So A raises the children, B is their partner, B lavishes attention and money on C, attention and money are both needed back home. C happens to be the new partner. And jealousy might crop up in A because, well, that's problematic because I need uh, I need more resources. Quite legitimately, I need more of your time, quite legitimately. And you're not giving our established relationship its due. And again, we can talk in the moment about um, something uh, that uh, my friend... Uh, Laurie Beth Bisbee, who's who's a, a therapist and and television presenter here, specialises in non-monogamous and kinky couples. Um, she refers to a sweat equity, sweat equity in a relationship, which is a, a a really good observation. Now, if you are feeling jealousy because of perceived injustice, that doesn't necessarily mean that your perception is correct, but if it were correct, it would be understandable that nature has given us these feelings um, to identify a, a potential problem that is a threat to our well-being. The other thing which came out of looking at this is, is my suspicion that jealousy and the various things associated with it can be relatively specific to time and place. So if you're living in a non-monogamous, a consensually non-monogamous society or a society where non-monogamy is the norm, if we can imagine such a thing. Having a partner who has other relationships brings with it no degree of social disapproval. You're not a lesser person in the eyes of others. There are generally the frameworks there which will remind everybody involved their duties to the people that they're, they're seeing, their children, uh, the people they provide for, parents, what have you. Um, but in other societies, something which wouldn't move the needle in modern America or modern Europe, uh, such as, I don't know, it's the fact that you're 
partner, female partner, because behavior of women is always more controversial, right? Because heaven knows what they would get up to if not fully controlled by an obliging man. Um, something that would be completely innocuous here, such as talking to a colleague of the opposite gender um, at work, wouldn't perhaps be tolerated somewhere like Iran. It certainly isn't tolerated in Afghanistan, which is what, why women can't go to into education anymore, possibly wouldn't have been tolerated in, in the Verona of Romeo and Juliet, where, you know, I, th I think knife fights normally ended with one party trying to stab the other in the buttocks. Um, it was sort of like humiliating and made your point and was typically non-fatal, which is probably better than having to pick up the, the tab for having you know, slaughtered someone. Um, so all of these things have social context. And I think what people find when they rise beyond jealousy is they escape not necessarily the feelings, but they've perhaps to some extent free themselves of the anxieties around the social implications. It's like, you know, when you're discussing consensual non-monogamy with somebody who's very conservative, perhaps very macho, it's like, how can you let your woman go and have sex with other people? It's like the first start, you have this very uh, uh, paternalistic. Uh, patriarchal view of men's ownership of women in that particular example. Um, and then the implication that somehow you're a failure as a man for allowing it as if it's in your gift. And there are many other cultural assumptions. And if that is your group, and we're back to discussing belonging to a group, and you risk exclusion from your group, then you self-criticize. You feel ashamed. You feel a lesser person for having allowed your partner these these liberties and then you know being shamed into being less than a man you can see how that ends up and it's not an excuse for domestic violence but it's perhaps context for 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 that kind of thing where people are egged on by other people and and ashamed for their behavior and are put under social pressure to to correct a perceived problem and what's a perceived problem in one social setting isn't perceived isn't a perceived problem in another. I, mean, I suspect even in modern America, something that would would pass muster in San Francisco wouldn't necessarily uh, pass muster in in Idaho. I'm not particularly familiar with Idaho, so if I've got it wrong, and Idaho is a bastion, I, I, I think you're good. I think you're good. I think I think you got it got it on point there. We do get quite a lot of American politics over here, which I follow with a degree of morbid fascination. Yeah, we, we totally export it to all over the rest of the world. Um, if, if I may, two, um, two interesting points is, is one of them is, um, you know, we're on the, the subject of jealousy and, and, you know, you're saying that it's, it's multifaceted and not one thing. Um, there's a lot of interesting, um, research in evolutionary psychology with, um, for those unfamiliar, um, Sperm wars was a very controversial idea in the 1970s, um, and they discovered that a substantial portion of a man's sperm does not even attempt to procreate, and they are just kamikaze pilots trying to crash into other dudes' sperm to help their buddies get to the finish line. Um, and that idea actually kind of grew up, and you know, it's it's it become a part of the conception of human mating. You know, that, that, hey, there's a chance that the person that you're sleeping with might have been sleeping with other people. So mechanisms evolved to displace their sperm because in nature, it's a competition. Um, but one thing that's very interesting that's, that's 
a little bit more down to earth that's very well documented is um, sex hormone levels rise when somebody thinks that their partner has been unfaithful. And to me, that, and I think a lot of other people, can be a very enjoyable experience. And you have these hot wife relationships and cuckold relationships, and these people are enjoying a biological gift that we have been given. And I just think that's fascinating that, that we've evolved this emotion and it is within the context of shame and society's disapproval that it's a bad thing. But what I think happens, and this is certainly what happened with me, is I walked into a situation with somebody I trusted and cared about, and I am able to experience that situation without that shame and without that fear or without that, oh, I'm not good enough. Uh, what's wrong with me? Because we've already resolved those things. And now you can experience that biological response with completely new glasses on. And it's, I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, I, I don't have one of those types of relationships now, but I did plenty of times in the past and it was a wonderful experience. It was really, really good and enjoyable. Um, and it just goes to show you that it, it's not necessarily always pushing through something that's uncomfortable, right? It's, it's all about kind of taking what you have and framing it in such a way to kind of give you the easiest glide into what you're trying to do. And the best way to do that is to be open, honest, and, you know, um, trusting with your partner too. Um, you're mentioning the the control that men have, which is honestly, it's, at, at the end of the day, it's just an illusion of control, right? Because nobody's controlling anybody. You know, at the end of the day, people still are, you know, unethically non-monogamous all the time. Um, so it's it's more of an illusion and raising the stakes to make sure that there's consequences for that is what they're doing. But just last night, I was actually going through uh, a little bit of the old literature from the early 1800s when the uh, birth control pills like weren't even pills they were just kind of hodgepodge kind of supplements strewn together and uh, one of them was very successful and it started working without without killing the mothers pregnant women and the argument against this the first argument was not religion it was not even you're killing babies nobody really cared the first argument was well, how are you going to know if she's cheated on you? And the flyers basically say, you know, paraphrasing here, you know, but that virgin that you thought had waited her entire life for you has been soiled by a thousand hands. <laughs> and and there, people were just generally under the impression that if you left, left a woman alone for five or ten minutes, that she would hump three or four paramours if you just turned your back. And it's just like totally disconnected from reality that that's that's not how human beings are or work but it just shows you the delusions that people can go to to rationalize this uncomfortable feeling if they don't face it and and pay attention to it and and i just i thought that was unbelievable I and mean, then that to, that to them was common knowledge here in the united states you know that we're not talking about um saudi arabia or afghanistan we're talking about the united states where you know oh you know you can't leave your wife alone for 10 minutes because she will definitely helps someone and uh and now we have a society where that where that happened go ahead sounds a lot like uh, men projecting their own sexuality onto that of their 
their female partners. I, I do want to caveat one thing. Um, when we were talking about control, um, people do manage through abuse to exert a very high degree of control over partners. But no, I think control, as you said, is an illusion in the greater scheme of things. Um, human beings like the illusion of control over pretty much every aspect of their lives because it's comforting. And if we actually looked unblinkingly at the chaos of the universe and, and the inevitability of death, we, you know, we'd, we'd freak out. So polar opposite from, um, from jealousy, you get compersion, which is awesome for those who have not felt it before. Um, Jonathan, do you want to give us a brief explanation of what compersion is? Yeah, I looked up the linguistic roots of it and have promptly forgotten them. But essentially, the community um, wanted to coin a term. Uh, the woman's name is on the tip of my tongue, who's, who it's attributed to. But it captures the idea that you can take pleasure in the pleasure of one of your partners enjoying time, sex, whatever it happens to be with someone else. You're just happy for them being happy, regardless. It's not a threat to you. And one of the more interesting um, conversations that I had was with an academic called Dylan Seltzman, I think was at the time at the University of Maryland. And, and if I'm not much mistaken, a social psychologist, and he said that was one of the things that surprised him most because he didn't think that people could actually feel compersion, but people were reporting to him that they did feel compersion. And and I suppose, again, this is, is, is very much um, tied in with two things. One, escaping our normal social constraints. And the other thing that happens through compersion, which I've noticed a lot, is this is the kind of epiphany that a lot of people who practice consensual non-monogamy have, where they think they become somehow transcendent, because they have managed to transcend what is, in many ways, learned behavior, jealousy. As we were saying, it's, it's, there is a strong social context to jealousy. And if you overcome that, it's like, wow, if I can overcome it, anyone can overcome it. Yes. And, and I'm just going to clarify here too, as somebody who's, who's been there, you know, a lot of times, it's not to somebody who's never experienced it or never even tried, you know, to do a, anything outside of the monogamous realm. It's not as shallow of a thing as it probably sounds at first. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with overcoming our feelings, especially the uncomfortable ones, especially the ones that get a lot of people in trouble and ruin a lot of lives. And I think that if more people had the wherewithal to control, it doesn't matter what those feelings are, whether it's the alcoholism that completely ruins the family, you know, there's a lot of those feelings that end up being very, very negative things in people's lives. Uh, most of all, our own lives. And yeah, it's, it's a good feeling. And it's okay to pat yourself on the back for what you've done, for who you've become. When you look back and you kind of cringe at who you used to be and the things that you used to think. And that's me. That, that's my story, you know? And, and yeah, I'm proud of who, I be, who I've become. And I'm happy with that. And But I think that it goes much more beyond that. It's one of those things where the, the true compersion is, is kind of hard to put into words, but you know, how do you describe the feeling of first falling in love with somebody, right? It's, I mean, it just defies description, but there is just that unspoken bond that is solidified to a much greater degree when 
you know, if everything is agreed upon, consensual and chosen, then, you know, it just, for some people like myself, it gets magnified. And that's an incredible feeling. It's an incredible feeling of closeness with the other person. Um, and that's the best I can do to describe it, unfortunately. But to me, it's kind of, in a sense, the opposite of jealousy or not really, because if you ask me, the opposite of jealousy would be like completely just not caring at all what the other person did, like just being totally indifferent. But yeah, I mean, it's to my, in my experience, that's, that was kind of what it was. Did you have any really interesting stories about compersion or something to that effect that jumped out at you during your interviews? I just want to pick you up on something before I get on with those, because there was a couple that I, I spoke to in Toronto who are um, very engaged members of the swinging scene. And they spoke about how seeing one another have sex with other people really brought them closer together. It, it You know, the, the barriers dropped away. There, there were very few things they could hide with each other. I suppose if we're afraid of being shamed or attacked for our unspoken desires, um, then we don't... It's like if there's something you can't say, if you tell a lie to your partner, um, all the work that goes into maintaining that lie, it's a lot of work. Lying is hard. Deception is hard. It's why the police are generally pretty good at keeping, catching people, telling lies, practice interrogators, because you have to maintain so many untruths. If there are actually real things that are lodged in your memory, you may get mixed up occasionally. It's huge, co huge cognitive load. It just. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have, but you have source material for truth. You don't have source material for a lie. It's, it's, you just keep extemporizing and then you never remember what you said and, 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 and so on. Um, and so sh having shed that, um, they were able to be really close and honest with each other and see each other as they, they really are. It's, it's, a, it's something Esther Perel picked up on, I think, in Mating in Captivity, being able to see your partner afresh, rekindling the spark that actually brought you together in the first place. You might catch sight of them on the other side of the room at a party, and you think, wow, who's that really attractive? Oh, it's my partner. Talking to someone else or seeing them really animated with somebody else, and, and you remember that, you know, them before most of your conversations started to revolve around, oh, did you remember to get ice cream for the freezer sort of thing? Um, so it, if, if I may, just briefly, briefly, there, it's in a sense too, there's, you know, in my experience, and I'll speak for myself here, it's also a completely new experience with your partner because hitherto until that point, you have experienced your partner in essentially the second person. And then now you are seeing what it's like from the third person perspective. You've never seen that before because you have hid that from one another, the entire relationship. And I think that's where some of the beauty lies because in a sense, it just washes over you that you realize there is this whole other sexual being contained in this person that has been totally off limits the whole time. And I've been totally in the dark about it. And now I get to see that side of that person. So it's an intimacy that is just, you see them, I'm sure you've heard this from pretty much everybody you talk to about the subject in a completely different light. And that's, I think that's why, because you now have them on like a dual access of, you know, one-to-one -one second person and a third person perspective. And you not only get the sexuality that is the sliver of their sexuality that they share with you, even if you were totally monogamous, you know, they, they 
probably masturbate. They take their own time. They have their own fantasies. They don't share with you all of those things. So even at its best, you're still only going to get a small percent. You're never going to get somebody's to experience that with them. And it reminds me a lot of, you know, I've traveled the United States. Uh, I've only left once to go to Iceland, but I traveled the United States working in politics before I was writing. And they would call you and you, you have to get up and, okay, but, you know, two weeks later, you got to move to a different city. Two weeks later, you're going to a different city. A month later, you're going to a different city and you're just constantly traveling. And it's great because you get to see all this, all the, you, they pay for the hotels and it's, you know, it seems wonderful. But after a couple of months, you realize how lonely it is to have all these wonderful experiences and nobody to share it with, except for the people on the internet. What's that? Now, you know how Bob Dylan feels. Uh, you, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, and uh, I think uh, Anthony Bourdain, didn't he? I thought he got really messed up with that. There's plenty of people who have had a lot of struggles with that when you have to travel for a artistic career. And I think that's where I think a lot of rock stars have trouble with that as well. Um, but yes, no. So it, but the fact that you cannot share that with the person or people in your lives in person is brutal. It's brutal after a while. And and you still enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I didn't sulk. I still enjoyed myself. But I I definitely, there was always that thought in the back of my head that I wish that I had somebody here with me that I could share this with. And you are now sharing somebody's like most intimate aspects of themselves with them. And that is just gorgeous. It's beautiful. I wanted to pick you up on something you were talking about earlier. And I was going to go into this before I started talking about my my friends in Toronto. But you were talking about reaching the point where you felt compersion. And I think it's worth considering actually what the journey is to that point, because it's not necessarily just having an, a, an epiphany, a light bulb going on. What a lot of people have done to get to that point is to overcome all the feelings that, as you said, causes problems, or at least some of them. I mean, I, let's not pretend that people who have reached a point of compersion have um, waved goodbye to all their feelings of anger or insecurity or, jeal or jealousy or envy or, or fear or what have you. But they've certainly managed to dispel some of them. And I, I feel that it's, it's not unakin to Buddhist ideas of non-attachment. Once you put distance between yourself uh, and something, once you can make your peace with its absence, with the fact that things end, you lose things, um, then you're much less liable to be hurt. I think the, the Buddha famously taught that you know, w when we get shot with an arrow, we uh, are wounded twice. We're wounded once by the arrow and, and second time by that, the, all the feelings of, why me? Why has somebody shot me? Why is this my fate? Why am I so unlucky? You know, this is wrong. So. The arrow has hit you. There's nothing you can do to change that, but your feelings amplify that. And there is a quote that I put in the book from Osho, who is not somebody who I am um, uh, an unalloyed fan of. I'm not personally big on, on gurus, but I thought it was a good observation. And he compared um, love to, to a flower. And he said, if you love somebody, it's, it's a bit like ha having a flower. And I paraphrase here. Um, if you see a flower, why do you want to pick it? You know, because the flower dies. I mean, if you want to, to really appreciate that flower, um, you leave it growing where it is. And I think how he summed that up is love is not a possession. 
love is appreciation. And it's, it's easy to say, and for a lot of people, it's hard to do, but it's quite a profound thought. So I, it sounds, listening to you, I was reminded of that, because I'm presuming that to get to that point, you'd actually gone through quite a, a lot of, of, of work, quite a lot of struggle, and, and you realized that there were depths to you in terms of overcoming some of these feelings that perhaps you hadn't previously been aware of. Indeed, indeed. And, you know, uh, and I'm a long way from being the Buddha, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, no, the, indeed, it was a process and it doesn't feel like one when it's happening, especially if it happens over, like in my case, it happened over a couple of different relationships where it was like, you go a little further, try something new, try something different, maybe try it that way while you're starting to get it worked out. And then it doesn't feel like one long succession because it's broken up into segments of your life that your brain kind of effortlessly even against your will sometimes compartmentalizes into this area with this person and that and you kind of forget that it's one um long time span but yes yeah definitely and, and there is there is that sense of overcoming and you know i'm i'm not gonna say that i'm that enlightened because my main motivation was just it was super arousing like at the time you know it was the arousing thing to do like and that's, you know, when, when I got there, when I got to that compersion point, like in the beginning, it felt like I was being inauthentic in my monogamous relationships. And then, and then once I started to get there and I got closer, then it was just like, okay, this is, you know, the jealousy's kind of starting to fade away and I can just, you know, and, and it, then it was just pure arousal. And then, then I awoke into this, the flower is, is the metaphor you just used puts it. That was just, you know, breathtaking and totally unexpected as well. And, and you're not alone. And I think this is one of the most interesting pieces of research that I reviewed for the book. And there were quite a few. And it was some research done in the US about relationship satisfaction uh, and sexual satisfaction um, amongst four different groups, monogamous people, people in open relationships. And by that, we probably mean people who are sort of in a don't ask, don't tell. It's, it's not an engaged consensual non-monogamy. It's uh, sort of like a mutually tolerated or agreed non-monogamy, but you don't really know what your partner is up to. You have parallel lives in terms of your dating. And the other two groups are people who are polyamorous and, um, and people who were involved in swinging. And the swingers had the highest sexual satisfaction of any group. Um, the polyamorous people had quite high se sexual satisfaction, certainly above that of monogamous people and uh, people in open relationships. Um, but they came out top for relationship satisfaction. So they had more than one satisfying, nurturing relationship, and that presumably was what they were after. The thing that interested me is that the monogamous people did not come bottom of the table. People who came bottom of the table were people in open relationships who were aware, in theory, that their partner was up to something else, but there was no sense of connection there. And so when you say, and we... We talk about the sense of connection that people make with their partner through this high degree of openness. If there's no engagement, you're not actually reaching that. And that seems to be the really bonding thing, the breaking down of barriers so that you can be wholly authentic with one another. So it's quite possible that a lot of the people in monogamous relationships were able to do that because they positively choose a, a, a monogamous, fidelitous relationship. And that suits them. And I, I must stress, and I'll I'll stress again that the book in no way um, 
runs down the idea of monogamy because it's it's a if if that is the choice you want to make, then um, consensual non-monogamy is the wrong choice for you. Just as if you lean towards consensual non-monogamy, um, monogamy is the wrong choice for you. And we need to acknowledge that some people are what has been termed ambiamorous. They wander between the two. There are periods of their lives when they like being monogamous, and there are periods of their lives when they like being non-monogamous. I mean, people, we're diverse, we're different live with it so yeah indeed uh, um and and uh before i forget did, did you want to expand on the uh the couple in toronto at all well i i just actually found them quite inspiring because i mean the, the first time actually the, the the entire idea was really articulated to me and it took took me a while this was oh a good 15 years or so ago now i was sitting down for for a drink with uh with a guy and her friend um politician gay and he was wondering why we treat sex for instance fundamentally differently and it's the whole idea of sexual infidelity that tends to bedevil people uh, though to be fair emotional infidelity causes people um, problems too but why don't we treat it like going to the cinema with somebody and the way I tend to think of it is once you kind of like sorted out the fact that your partner uh, is quite free to uh, sleep with anyone they want, the fact they want to go out to the cinema with their friends becomes a hell of a lot less problematic. Mm. So that's, the, if you like, the, the whole sexual issue or the issue of emotional intimacy um, is, is the rubbing point. If you can actually go up the chain and sort out that, uh, everything else is, is, is quite secondary. Because, I mean, if you could trust them with that, you can trust them with most things. Well, I suppose if you're a car nut, you might not trust them with your car if they're not a very good driver. I don't know. Yeah, it, even at 20 years old, I was having that thought right there, but I, I framed it a little bit differently, right? And I would I would explain kind of to my friends what I was thinking or, you know, when I was explaining it to the girls that I was dating because I had to, you know, there was no way to say, hey, I am this person. It was like you would have to start dating somebody in a little while and say, hey, what do you think about this? Let's talk about it. Like, because this is my experiences and this is what I've been through and I just don't think that that's very authentic. And so, you know, long story short, one of my ex explanations would kind of always be, you know, I'm not a very good plumber. I mean, I can snake a drain and I can do, you know, a handful of things. And so if you need something, some plumbing done, like you're not going to call me and that's okay. Like I would not get upset if you called a plumber or somebody to, you know, there are, countless examples of the, the things we turn to people in society to have different types of relationships, you know, professional and transactional towards romantic and much more um, communitarian. And I don't understand just like you, like you just said, why we have this one segment segmented point. I mean, I do understand now, but you know, I didn't at the time understand why we had this one segmented point of, Oh, you know, nobody else can can even come close to this. And I can't even leave you alone for five minutes, apparently, because you're going to shag everybody in the room if it's the 1800s, you know? <laughs> like, uh, it, it, yeah. And, and anthropologists, anthropologists spend a lot of time, or some anthropologists spend a lot of time, or, or, or archaeological anthropologists wondering about whether the same rules applied in early societies or whether they still apply in in remote Groups in places like the Amazon, the Ananami. I remember going to talk 
uh, years ago in Oxford about the Annan army by somebody who'd lived and, and worked alongside them and studied them, saying that basically it was a leisured society where people spent about sort of like 20 hours a week providing for their needs. And the rest of the time they spent hanging around, chatting, playing around and having sex. And it was not an unattractive, I mean, obviously the Annan army are having a horrendous time with, with loggers and miners and stuff in the Amazon. So be careful what you, you wish for. But the Annan army ideal didn't seem uncomplicatedly bad. It mm. seems to do them pretty well, as long as they were left alone by people who come in and break their lives. So, you know, and, and I suppose people ask this question because one of the things that that typically happens with all sorts of deviations from the middle of the bell curve is we're told that it's unnatural. And actually, one thing that, going back to the fact that nature likes diversity and likes to hedge its bets, is very few things are unnatural. If you look for homosexuality in nature, you'll find plenty of it. If you look at non-monogamy in nature, you'll find it's almost ubiquitous. You have to struggle to find examples of a proper monogamy. And somebody, I, I, one of the people I interviewed, um, a, a scientist from California, was talking about a work that she'd done with one of her mentors on, on, on prairie voles, or one of her mentors had done. And prairie voles are archetypes of monogamy. But they still found that, that, you know, when one prairie vole was away, the other one would be quickly hooking up with a, another prairie vole while protesting loudly the whole time. It's like the equivalent of going, no, no, stop, no. But it's not their safe word. So it's like they don't actually mean no, 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 stop, because they've already agreed that the safe word is mine's aardvark or armadillo because nobody in their right mind screams armadillo in the middle of a situation like that. But... um so, so basically, prairie, prairie voles make all the protesting noises. So they're giving like, themselves cover. They're like, oh, okay, just in case I get caught. Unless, unless, unless this, uh, this, this, this particular scientist has completely misinterpreted prairie vole behavior, and it's their job not to. Um, that, despite their their uxorious, their very monogamous reputation, they they still have uh, relationships outside the pair bond, and likewise, um, swans. They do a genetic analysis of eggs uh, in a swan's nest and paternity is all over the shop. So swans are, might make for life, but they're, but that's sort of like a, 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 a pair bond in that sense, but it's not a sexual pair bond. They're not sexually exclusive. So um, unnatural, it's not. It really comes back down to choice. Yeah. And, you know, there is an interesting debate, I think, among people. And I think you might be able to shed some light on this, but I'm just going to give my take. It seems like whenever this conversation crops up, people divide easily into two camps. The totem camp of the, you know, prehistoric societies were just very rigidly hierarchical. And there was the alpha male who got all the sex while the other men went without. And then there's the polar opposite, which is the everybody was egalitarian and it was lovely. Here's my take. Some societies were one way. Other societies were another way. To me, that makes perfect sense. Of course, you know, there, while we have discovered a lot of things, we probably know a small fraction of what early humanity was like. And But it wouldn't surprise me if you had absolutely despotic, brutal societies and you had very egalitarian, equal societies. And the ratios of that is definitely up for debate, but it's like, a, like an Athens and Sparta of sorts. Um, 
that would not surprise me at all. And I think the theory is that once resource hoarding became possible, powerful people who controlled more resources became more attractive. And one of the people I interviewed for the book, another academic, he felt that that monogamy was a social contract because it dealt with the the problem of men without partners roaming around being troublesome and aggressive. It's like, okay, so we'll share the women out. If you look at um, incel uh, threads, and I, um, there is this sort of, they tend to be very libertarian, right libertarian, um, until they get to the distribution of women, at which point they become um, not even Marxist, they're still more Maoist. Um, so, which is a very odd combination. It's like, yes, we should all be given a woman. And it's like there's a woman factory in, in, in sort of like the hinterland of, of uh, Beijing where women are cranked out and then they are distributed to comrades according to their needs. You know, I, just, I, well, I was, I was going to see if there's something. I, I'm not sure if you've seen there's like the, with the Jordan Peterson interview on Joe Rogan. I'm, I'm not like- sure if that's the thing you spend your time watching, but there was, there was one interview and Joe Rogan pressed him on his defense of, of the incel community. And, you know, and Jordan Peterson leading up to that point had been telling everybody that, and I quote, the moment you talk about giving people equal outcomes, you need to be put in the box. You know, you're just a fool is what he kept saying. And then, you know, eventually Joe Rogan pressed him enough to where he said, you know, what's what's wrong with that? If if people are, you know, if there's one good looking guy and, and he gets all the women and, and you know, I mean, that's just, isn't that just kind of nature doing its thing? And how do you solve that? And Peter said, well, you got to tilt the society back up. And then he just stopped and said, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just exactly I, I, what you're talking about, right? It's like caught yourself mid sentence saying, "Almost, almost there, man. You were almost there." Saying, "All right, yeah, well, maybe we should get some equality going." It is very funny. Yes, I've observed that exactly. There was slightly unkindly said of the actor Stephen Fry, who uh, presents quiz shows and stuff here, that he was a stupid person's idea of an intelligent person, which I think is ungenerous. But I think actually, when it comes to Jordan Peterson. And uh, Boris Johnson, that's probably fair. Um, yeah, I've got. I think I've got three whole episodes of just myself talking, as long as we've talked now on dissecting Jordan Peterson's words, and just it doesn't make any sense. And it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's generally pretty good. With the things I've heard of him when he's talking on on subjects which are uh, towards the core of his academic work, but he talks essential problems. Yes, experts. Um, in an sort of expert tone about all sorts of things that he doesn't know about. And then he makes loads of very elementary mistakes. And it's like, you know, one of the things that defines us as wise as we get older is we kind of reach our, a, 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 a level of understanding of the limits of our knowledge and we make our peace with it. And we accept that other people know a bunch more stuff about things that we don't know about. And the things that we know quite a lot about, you know, are relatively narrow. And quite often we're wrong about those. And he sort of like lacks that humility. And I think that's, that's, but anyway, I don't want to like, just duff up Jordan Peterson because I'm sure he's a lovely man and, and, and doesn't deserve the bad press. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm glad I've reached that point in my life where, um, where I don't feel the need to, um, pretend that I'm an expert on things that I'm not. And, uh, yeah. And, and that you see that all the time online. People, oh, I have to say something here. It's like, no, 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 I don't. Cause I've, I've learned the hard way. Cause I've done, I've made that stupid mistake way too many times. Which kind of segues into another thing that we were going to talk about, which is the fact that writing this book is, does not make me an expert about it. It makes me a journalist. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is part of the reason I actually did it because there are a lot of people that I've come across, um, some better than others, some who genuinely are expert. I think Elizabeth Chef is widely acknowledged to be somebody with a serious grounding in, in, in psychology. Um, uh, um, I think it's Jessica Fern, isn't it? Wrote Polysecure is another therapist. Uh, Laurie Beth Bisbee, who I mentioned earlier, Meg John Barker, all of these people have a lot of training. You know, there are a lot of intelligent people writing about stuff that they know, but equally there is a growing influencer community um, who are putting out stacks of content on consensual non-monogamy, much of which is really driven by the need to constantly feed the beast and isn't thought out. And there's some really terrifying bad advice out there. And then there's what I call the school of me and my 50 sweeties in a flower-strewn valley in Sweden personal poly memoir school of writing, which is lovely, but it just gives you one person's take on, on things. And what I really wanted to do was get right away from that. Um, there's a lot of writing that's come out of North America on, on polyamory, on consensual non-monogamy, partly because that's where it's had the greatest freedom to evolve, where many of the, 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 the most dynamic discussions about it are taking place. But one thing, and do forgive me, um, the media, I think, that people get in, 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 in the US, from, from what I understand, and I don't spend a huge amount of time there, um, is quite inwardly focused. There's a lot of news about America. There's a lot of discussion about America. Um, there are quite a few Americans who, it's such a huge country, I guess you guys don't really need to go outside the borders to go on holiday. You can go somewhere utterly, utterly different, certainly climatically, geographically without ever leaving the United States. But the things that we take for granted, and I really, really came face to face with how much we take culturally for granted when I left the UK and went to live in Southeast Asia, and, and I was a foreign correspondent there for a number of years. And you assume that certain things are just universally accepted as ideas, and they are really not. So it could be a, a very simple thing like um, in East Asia, attitudes towards responsibilities to parents are very, very different than they would be in Western Europe and North America. Um, and, and, and in Western Europe and North America, they will vary. Um, so I wanted to bring in more perspectives. I wanted to make this very much a book uh, as a resource where you had many voices. So there are people from Australasia. There are people from Southeast Asia, there are people from South Asia, uh, there are some voices from Africa, albeit that's where I struggled probably most because most of those African voices were expatriate African voices. Mm -hmm. And from various parts of Europe, particularly the UK, plenty from North America, um, one person from, from, from Latin America, again, sort of outside my network, but, uh, uh, you know, a, a diverse range of voices. About half the people in the book interviewed uh, who were practicing consensual non-monogamy are people of color. Probably about half of them are, are queer. It's a very strong representation of people who are disabled or neurodiverse or, or have other things which put them outside the center of the bell curve in terms of their, their social experience. And which was interesting itself because the experiences a lot of the time were, were quite common. But one of the things you, you also found, and I, this didn't totally surprise me, is that the level of engagement with the ideas behind consensual non-monogamy is much more developed in the US, slightly less so in Europe, somewhere like Singapore, where I interviewed quite a few people, 
passing through or in Indonesia or India or what have you, it's much more make it up as you go along. There isn't a critical mass of people having these conversations. People know they're consensually non-monogamous. They pick things up in, uh, on the internet. They often recycle from elsewhere. But because those things aren't really culturally plugged into where they're from, they don't really graft in the same way as 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 somebody from the States writing for an American audience would, would resonate with people there or somebody from the UK writing for a British audience would resonate there. So essentially, it was an exercise in passing the mic to people from very, very many different parts of the world, very many different backgrounds. They did have things in common. They tended to be more globalized than most. Um, they tended to be more educated than most. Um, we probably don't have much visibility of consensual non-monogamy as practiced in working class communities, in economically uh, marginal groups, uh, and in remote locations, because um, it's, it's necessarily much more low-key. Uh, people do what they need to do to survive. And you know, you have to acknowledge, uh, particularly if you subscribe, and I'm, uh, it makes perfect sense to me to ideas such as intersectionality, that if you already face levels of challenges um, about, for instance, uh, your cultural background, uh, your gender, your orientation, you may have a, 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 a disability or what have you, you don't necessarily want to add another layer of problem on the top by being perceived as other in yes, another way. So. Oh, I, I do for that. many reasons. Now I do I do that. I you know, we, we have a very like agreed upon who you tell, who you don't tell, who doesn't need to know. You know, the 95-year-old grandmother doesn't necessarily need to know, right? Like, yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's definitely, you know, and and there are limits to where you let your freak flag fly, you know, that you don't have to do it um all the way. Sorry to sorry to cut you off there. I just wanted to not at all, but I think for people who, are, who don't have economic power and people who are marginalized by societies because of their ethnicity or, or what have you or their sexuality, um, there is very limited freedom to speak about um, things like consensual non-monogamy outside trusted groups. So it's harder to start conversations with the kind of people that you might um, forge relationships or community with. And consequently, I, mean, I, th I, th I think it probably just stunts the development of um, consensually non-monogamous cultures and, and those groups. And, and people might also quite reasonably say, well, also, we have a lot more important things to, to worry about than maintaining you know, uh, a solo poly arrangement with, with, with four partners when actually there are three children to feed and... Uh, I've got to hold down a job and my husband's got to hold down two jobs and I've got to look after aging parents. You know, problems mount up. So to a certain extent, um, being consensually non-monogamous in the way that a lot of people are in, in the richer world is, is a luxury. Mm. Um, no, and, and we're just, we're just a media culture. So I'm originally from Los Angeles, even if I live in Florida now, you know, and people would tell me, Oh my goodness, Los Angeles, that's so dangerous. And it's like, no, we just have a really lot of a media that likes to videotape everything and then it gets exported, you know, and that's definitely a one way street, right? Like if, if, if you asked me right now, you know, can you name three famous singers in India or China? Like I'm lost, man. I'm lost. You know, I can United Kingdom. Yes. Maybe a few in Germany, a couple in Russia, you know, but that's about the extent of it. And there's just, there's just so many countries out there with a lot of people, very, economic powerhouses that 
we know nothing about. And because the the media relationship is totally disproportionate, one where we export from the West and we don't get anything back. So I think that might also play a very small role there. Two things. One, I just wanted to mention briefly, and then I had a question for you. The thing I wanted to mention briefly, and I doubt there's anybody following the science of sex who thinks this way, but just in case, you know, I, I feel like it should be said that th th your book is definitely not one of those books where it's like, this is how you need to feel. And this, if you know, and it, that tells you everything you're doing wrong and all of your biases and why you're a terrible person. And it's definitely not one of those. Like there is, there is like a strain of, um, and it's, it's a minority, but there's like a, I'm, it's an elitism thing, you know, where I encounter sometimes polyamorous content and they're telling me why what they're doing is so much more enlightened than what I'm doing or what monogamous people are doing. And that's, to me, that's just not the way to have that conversation. And the book is definitely not decidedly not that because just wanted to clarify that for, for everybody, you know, just in case. Uh, yeah, it totally sets out to, to avoid that particular heffalump trap. It's, um, and in fact, it was predicated on a talk that I went to in Germany a few years back by somebody who was giving a talk on polyamory where they paraded their partners at the front of the room and their ex-husband and then gave advice like, nobody can make you feel anything. Again, come back to the issue of coercive control. Well, if you're sort of like psychologically battered, yes, people can make you feel something. And it was just, just a desire to be position oneself as an expert on things without at least thinking through what you're going to say and the ramifications of it. Um, and I just wanted to do something which is a little more then I brought my skill. I mean, I've been a journalist for something over 30 years now. Um, I look old and crumbly enough for people to believe that. But you pick up skills and those skills are going to the people who know what they're talking about, either their personal experiences or the fact that they've studied something. Just let them talk. And, and that is really what I hope, hope, hope this does. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely, it was definitely an easy read in that I, the entire time I did not feel like I am being told that I have to make a choice or even that I have to agree with something. You know, it was like, it, it, this is, this is what I have experienced and encountered with people. And you can make your decisions on that, dear reader, however you will. One thing I did want to ask you about because it's fascinating to me. And we, we covered it a little bit in the lead up to this. And that is, um, the cultural specificity of emotions you mentioned. So what is that all about you? So you found that, that emotions have different dynamics or contexts in different cultures. Do you want to go ahead and explain? Well, I wouldn't say that, I found that specifically. It's not really a revelation of the book. I mean, but, but I think you could probably argue, I think people often argue that, that in um, East Asia, for instance, shame is a very powerful force. In other parts of the world, guilt is. Mm -hmm. But um, those don't necessarily translate back over. And um, Different societies have different levels of tolerances of certain emotions or emotions full stop. So some societies you are, are taught from an early age not to display your emotions. I've, one of the things that, that I did, um, encounter in research was, was the example, uh, the, the example of how we socialize our children. Um, so if a young child falls over and this very much plays into attachment theory as well, a young child falls over and, 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 and hurts themselves there will be quite often a moment between carer often mother and and child where the child looks to the mother to see what they're supposed to be feeling it's like they're on the verge of expressing pain and then the mother goes oh no 
And then the child goes, wah! And, and, then, and then expresses their feelings because they've been given permission and they've been signaled that it's appropriate to do so. And, and, and you can imagine a situation where the mother goes, no, don't cry if you've been hurt. And that child grows up not being able to express pain um, when there's physical pain because it's, it's taboo. They, they've been trained not to do it. Again, and, and, and I have to say that this, this idea of belonging, um, it, the, the, the idea of belonging, um, and this comes back to the being excluded from the, your group of 150, your, your hunter-gatherer group, I increasingly think, and this is really just personal opinion, drives a lot of our behavior, socially and politically. So when I look at the things like the phenomenon of, of Donald Trump, um, I don't really think of it in terms of ideas because a lot of people who support Trump, from what I can see, again, I'm speaking from outside the United States and this is what you guys live and it's just what I watch a bit like a sports fan. Um, but they don't necessarily approve of everything he does and they don't necessarily agree with every one of his ideas. But they are part of a community. And if you break with Trump, you, for a lot of people, that would mean breaking with all their friends. And likewise, if you're on the political left or liberal side or whatever you refer to in America, um, our idea of left wing here and your idea of left wing there are not wholly the same. Um, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And you guys actually have two formal parties, whereas we just have kind of one. But yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, actually, our, our politics here is becoming a lot more plural. So we have, we have, you know, four or five um, who are making a serious impact. But, um, but equally, people who have moved in very liberal circles might find that if they did certain things or adopted certain positions, and I think the debate over uh, trans rights, for instance, can be very divisive uh, amongst people on, on the progressive side of politics. Um, and we're seeing that here. Uh, you risk losing your social circle, your mm -hmm. network, friends and so on. And so it's much easier to adjust your thinking to the thinking of the group rather than get the group to come with you. And the risk of rupture is really great. And I think it holds people back um, and makes people self-center and makes people or leads people to adjust their thinking to conform. It's sort of like, it's not even a kind of a thought out or a formal social pressure. It's, it's sort of just the way that group dynamics often work. And one of the things actually that did come out of the book, people did observe um, in terms of abuse, is that within um, particularly polyamory, um, there is the latitude for abuse at a group level because of the way that poly networks can uh, work, particularly where there is a dominant and toxic is a bit of an easy word to throw out, a difficult figure, um, somebody who might behave inappropriately, but who is sufficiently controlling that they actually manage to bring the group to bear on people who are challenging them. So it's conform or be excluded. And again, you know, this, this is, that's your family. If your network is, is your family, for a lot of people who are polyamorous, they end up having substitute families within polyamory because relationships become close with metamors. They become as valuable as relationships with partners for lots of people. You know, you want to lose all of that because you challenge the big man, generally a man. Um, so yes, I, th I think thinking in terms of, of group behavior and not particularly with polyamory, but just generally with humans is, is, is a useful perspective.
thing, which you're referring to uh, Dunbar's number that 150, mm. just for the audience, that's, um, you know, the theory that um, we evolved in tribes about 150 or less, never really more than 150. And therefore there's kind of like a maximum that human societies can stretch to. I, when I was a kid in school, I think people kind of framed it like, oh, you only have enough time in the day to spend with that many people. And well, the reality is that's the theory is that we evolved to do that. And what we're finding is, and some people have, have, you know, hypothesized, it's not proven by any means, but it's a compelling hypothesis is that's how some of these, uh, like ideas such as religion and politics and maybe even Alcoholics Anonymous, something like that has been able to stay around and be so enduring is that it has helped people expand beyond that because if somebody is from australia and they come to the united states and they're both christians well a lot of times but not every time hey they've instantly got a friend or you know if they're an alcoholics or narcotics anonymous and they go somewhere else they instantly have a friend and so in a sense ideas allow us to transcend that and in a way i think that's why people very much fall in love with a lot of the ideas and identities that they end up encountering um but as far oh go ahead go ahead go ahead sorry uh, it's just so. This is a chap called Robin Dunbar, and he's uh, an academic at Oxford, and I believe he's an anthropologist. And I would love to meet him because he sounds utterly fascinating. And he posits that the number of relationships that we can maintain at different levels is uh, really related to the size of our prefrontal cortex. But what? Dunbar says is it's, it's not just 150, but he's suggesting that actually there are concentric circles of intimacy. So in terms of your, and the numbers aren't hard and fast, but they're indicative and they're not actually open to, to that much variation as I understand it. So you can maintain about five really intimate relationships. That might be your partner. That might be your kids. It might be your parents. It might be your best friend. It might be, you know, other people. It might be their five best friends. They have, you know, their partner might actually be more distant. Um, and then outside that, then you, it goes up five, 15. So 15 close friends. These are the kind of people you, you know, um, you might not speak to every day, but you catch up with, you share everything. What have you. And then 50 people. These are, these are people you actually call friends. Um, 150 people, your tribe, people you know, first name terms with, maybe 500 people who you can recall their names and there is some kind of, connection and you, you've stored some sort of information about your history together or about them. And then about 1,500 people um, is, is the max. And those are the people you might recognize. And what he's saying is actually military units, for instance, conform to these numbers quite closely. So a regiment might be about 500 people. Company size might be about 50. Platoon might be sort of like 15. Um, so you and, 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 and quite a lot of businesses, when they kind of get beyond 150 in an office building, um, they either have another floor, another 150 people there, or another building with 150 people. So the company is sort of like broken down into social units of about that number because it what is what functions. You know, we're not great. Um, I mean, we like cities because of the anonymity, precisely because we don't know the others, like 10 million people living in London or New York or wherever it is. Um, but at, at the same time, we, we couldn't function in an organization of, of half a million people because we would be nothing. We can't maintain those connections. And to some extent, I mean, that does have a bearing on consensually non-monogamous relationships because you're in a big network and so on. You, 
so when people talk about being polysaturated, um, having too many intimate connections, I mean, it, it's a thing. They do. Yes, you, you can explain that in terms of, of uh, time resources, financial resources, and so on. But it's also mental and emotional resources and being able to store all the information that you need to be able to store, remember all the things that happen to people. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, I think I brought that up because, and maybe this is my rose-colored glasses and someday I'll wake up to find myself disillusioned. But I tend to think that love is not a finite resource. I think that we could have, in theory, a group of people who love each other and they all give love and they receive love and it creates a symbiosis and that can magnify and exponentially take off. However, time, energy, focus, these things are very finite resources. And so, you know, anybody who is considering a alternative relationship structure would also do wise to understand their limits and to understand their partner's limits. I think that's where a lot of people might have trouble because it's one thing to know what your limits are. And then it's another thing to know what your partner's limits are and how much time and and focus and things that they need from you to be the best partner that you can be. And of course, that is going to be different for each and every one of us and what we can give and what we can receive. and you know, hopefully everybody can make it to where you can kind of find that balance. And I think that's what you'll find is the most successful people in um, alternative relationships is the people who have managed to make that balance work. Um, and it's interesting that you bring this up um, about the organization size. I, I was reading a book It's called Sex and War by Malcolm Potts. Very, very good book. Brutal at times. But he talks about the organization sizes and, you know, from the Roman legions to the American military, you know, all the successful military. And this is where Russia's having problems right now because it's a hierarchical thing from the top all the way on down. They don't have autonomous units to where it's okay. And so, you know, this unit is the unit that's close and they can kind of make their own decisions. If it's something crucial, they call back. But, you know, because it's completely hierarchical and those kinds of military structures often fail and they fail because what we're talking about, the, that number is baked into kind of the human condition. And it, uh, Potts even traces it back further um, because primates have the same thing as well, because um, primates are known to be kind of jerks and they gang up on each other and have kind of mob violence and uh, and and they are also the same size well not the same size but they have they have they have approximately similarly sized and and organized groups that don't just include everybody and um and that's just so fascinating to see how people work in group dynamics and um i think you could probably argue that this is one of the fundamental problems of autocracy that mm -hmm. the organizational structures and sizes are very unwieldy. Um, and I mean, there are other reasons. The fact in autocracies that the people at the top very rarely have people around them who can tell them when they're being an idiot, which is if you're running a big organization, a government or a large company, you really do need people who will, will take you aside and tell you being an idiot. I do not want people to watch this and walk away with this illusion that 
polyamorous relationships are all good because you you did mention that there sometimes can be troublesome figures that get involved. Did you encounter that a lot? Were there anything that's worth sharing or worth um, like having to take away for the audience? It comes back to the idea that you may be polyamorous or you may be a swinger or you may be an open relationship, but you still face all the challenges that everybody else does in relationships. I mean, they're, they're quite common sayings such as, you know, um, broken relationship, add one more person does not fix broken relationship as a, uh, when people open up their relationships when they're in trouble. I think that's a bit glib. Um, but, you know, as somebody else pointed out, you're never going to be in a perfect place and uh, at a perfect time to do it. So don't look for perfection, but actually um, additional relationships aren't really a fix for anything. Though they can actually meet unmet needs. There's an article uh, by Alan de Botton. Um, he wrote a piece for the New York Times back in 2016 called, I believe, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And there was a line in there, which, again, I really liked, which is, like, you know, a, a conversation that you, you need to have really early with somebody who's a prospective partner, possibly as early as the first date, is, and how are you, crazy? And it, it's slightly flippant, but it's like, also, that gets to... Uh, issues like, okay, what's really pushes your buttons? It's good to find out, for instance, if somebody is very insecure about things, if somebody is, I mean, if you look at things through attachment theory and uh, Jessica Fern's book is, is, is very strong on this. Um, you know, if, if, if you're anxiously attached uh, or, uh, or avoidant, that's going to have, um, and you're aware of that, you know, it's worth being upfront about it. Uh, self-awareness is, is the beginning of, 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 Addressing things that bedevil us that cause us problems. Um, it might be other things. It might you have a, a really difficult relationship with your parents. You were shamed a lot as a child. You don't take criticism well. Everything sounds like criticism to you. You were bullied. You know when somebody is 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 controlling of you, it presses buttons. You know you, you have a trauma response. All of this stuff. But equally, it might be what do you really want out of a relationship? So a lot of monogamous people might get five years into a relationship before they find that deep down actually they're their partner really doesn't want children, and it's the thing that they want most in the world. This is really what you need to get to the nub of before you actually put time and energy into something. When we talk about commitment, you've, you've committed resources. It's 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 sort of like a combination of uh, opportunity cost and, and sunk cost fallacy, isn't it? It's like I've invested that much, therefore I must make this thing, you know, be what I hoped it was going to be at the outset because I've lost five years to it, and now I'm. 40, but I was 35 and I'm just not as dateable as I was five years ago, partly because I haven't bothered to exercise because I got a partner and there was a lot of that very unpleasant beer that I drank. And then you're thinking, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life and nobody's ever going to talk to me again. I had five years that I lost. Never. Yeah. uh, But equally, you know, it's quite reasonable to try and avoid losing five years to to a relationship that doesn't help you grow as a person and doesn't nurture you and doesn't nurture your partner and help them grow either. So. Having these conversations early, I think, is very useful. And there's another caveat that I have to put in, just again to step away from the role of expert. So I talk about consent in the book, and Meg John makes a very wise remark about, you know, even those of us who are very aware of consent can still get it wrong and do things which are non-consensual. And they make the the observation that we live in a very non-consensual society. There are lots of things that we don't bother to ask other people about. Thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to give us the uh, book cover one last time? 
Let's do that. It is A World Beyond Monogamy, subtitled How People Make Polyamory and Open Relationships Work and What We Can All Learn From Them. It's absolutely, definitely, definitely worth worth the read. And I will, of course, post the link to go get the book down here in the description. Um, and awesome. Thank you for coming on The Science of Sex. Thank you, Joe. It's been a great conversation and lovely to chat to you.